Action is what I've titled the message here tonight. This is yet another psalm of David. It begins with the, the superscription, A Prayer of David. So that's a pretty simple title, A Prayer of David. This is one of five psalms that are identified in this way. And apart from the psalm written by Moses, Psalm 90, the other four are all written in a context of danger, where the person is crying out for deliverance, for help from God. And you know, when you're in a life-threatening situation, that's definitely time to pray, right? <laughs> if, you, if you don't pray otherwise, that's definitely time to pray. Of course, there, you should pray all the time. But um, Psalm 17 is full of petitions. In fact, someone has counted, I don't know, it maybe depends how you count it, but someone has counted 17 specific petitions here in this psalm. So Psalm 17, 17 petitions. That makes sense, right? Yes. Uh, well, in so doing, uh, in the petitions that he brings forth, David uses phrases and figurative language from the Exodus, which was a highlighted time of God's deliverance for his people, as we see uh, in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus. Now, we're not certain of the occasion for Psalm 17. Uh, David was in some kind of a life-threatening situation, that's clear. Uh, some think it was possibly when he was on, in the wilderness on the run from Saul, because he makes a real emphasis that he is surrounded, and he was surrounded by Saul's henchmen any number of times. So that may be, but again, we don't really know. Whatever the exact situation, David comes to God with a clear conscience, and he appeals to God in the language, really the language of the court, as if appearing before God as the chief justice who will decide his case. Now, when we do wrong and we suffer for it, uh, we know the punishment is just in a situation like that. We have it coming. However, sometimes God's people suffer unrelated to anything they have done wrong, and that seems to be the situation here. I mean, David pleads his case like this is not his problem. He hasn't done anything. Well, that can really be challenging. When you're going through a time of, of uh, intense suffering and, and a life-threatening situation, when, you know, your conscience is clear. Uh, it's not like you've done anything that you know about. Well, how should a person respond in a situation like that? Well, I think we can learn from David here. Uh, David took his case to the righteous judge of the universe, the Lord God Almighty. And so here's uh, my outline here. There we go. We'll bring it up here. Uh, the outline of Psalm 17. There it is. Uh, we start out, verses 1 and 2, a plea uh, for God to hear. 3 and 4, a plea from a tested heart. Uh, verse 5, a plea for God to uphold him. 6 through 9, a plea for God's protection. 10 through 14, a plea for divine intervention. A lot of pleas, if you please. And then, verse 15, we have, following all those petitions, we have the settled confidence of prayer, which is really kind of the high point of the psalm. And we'll get to it, Lord willing, as we come to the end. Verse 1, David says, <clears throat> again, uh, top of the, the psalm, a prayer of David, verse 1, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Hear a just cause. You see right from the very beginning the emphasis here, right? It's a just cause. Lord, I want you to respond, my cause is just. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. I'm not lying. I'm not playing any games. I'm honest to God. I'm very sincere. It's, it's a just cause. 
So he's really crying out to the Lord from a, from a heart of integrity. He's not playing games with God. He's not being a liar. He doesn't have deceitful lips. He's very confident that his cause is just. Now we read in Psalm 66, 18, uh, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. David's saying, now in this situation, there is not iniquity in my heart. There's integrity in my heart. And I'm appealing on that basis. Verse 2, let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. Now, it's interesting here. David did not take matters, he did not seek to take matters into his own hands, but rather he sought for God to vindicate him in accordance with what is right. Again, presupposition. This is a just cause. Uh, this is right. And he wants God to vindicate him in light of this. Now, it's always uh, the right thing to do, uh, to appeal to God to deal with a situation or deal with people instead of taking matters into your own hands. And that's what we see David doing here. Uh, he's not trying to vindicate himself. He's saying, let my vindication come from your presence. God, you vindicate me. God, you set the record straight here. Well, blessed are those who wait on the Lord uh, to write things for them instead of trying to make it happen in the flesh. And, and that's what David is asking God to do here, to write the situation, to vindicate him in this situation. Verse 3, you have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night. That's an interesting line, isn't it? You have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night. Ever had a divine visitation in the night? David did. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. You know, things happen in the night, right? A lot of times things happen in the night. When all is quiet in those wee hours of the, the darkness and the night, uh, it's amazing the things that go through your mind and your heart and your soul as you, as you wrestle with these things before God. That's the picture here. David wrestled through the night with this. And he says to the Lord, you have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You know, only God can really test the heart because he is the only one who ultimately knows the heart. Uh, we read in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the, the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. When a person, honest to God, opens themselves up to the testing of God, I think we can trust God uh, to reveal whatever he wants us to see. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I've been through that kind of experience where, you know, you just say, God, if I need to see something, I want to be just totally open before you. Uh, my God, show me whatever you want me to see. I think David was uh, going through a situation like that in the night. And if, you know, if you ever go through something traumatic and, and uh, let's say there's a major issue going on with you and others, uh, this is a good example here. Uh, David took it to the Lord. Uh, and, and basically, <laughs> he says, you have tested my heart and visited me in the night. Uh, God, show me if there's something wrong in my own heart. And I believe if we come to God with that honest-to-God heart, uh, I believe we can honestly trust that God will faithfully show us what we need to see. 
Well, God tested David's heart in the nighttime visitation, and David's conscience came through very clear, clear and clean. I don't think David is speaking generally uh, as if he never had any sin. Uh, that's not the case. I think he's speaking in reference to a very specific situation that he is now uh, dealing with in terms of specific people who are out to harm him. And I think David is saying, I haven't done anything to them. I don't deserve what they're trying to do to me. They're trying to wipe me out, and uh, I haven't done a thing to them. You know, that would definitely fit with Saul, by the way. Saul was always trying to kill David, and David wouldn't lift a finger to try to harm Saul. He never, he never did. So uh, that may well be the situation, but we don't really know again. Uh, sometimes uh, difficulties are the result of personal sin. Um, God does discipline his children, but uh, not always. Sometimes uh, personal difficulties are not necessarily because of any specific sin in a person's life. Uh, take Job, for example. Also, uh, take 1 Peter, for example. Peter writes to the suffering saints, and he says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Sometimes uh, we wouldn't say it need be, right? <laughs> but God has his sovereign purposes. Uh, and he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Sometimes God uses various trials to test us. Then he says that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then later in that same uh, little letter, chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Suffer according to the will of God. Sometimes you say, well, we're suffering because we're outside the will of God. Well, maybe, but sometimes people suffer because they're right in the will of God. How about that? That's what Peter is saying. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him. Give it to, over to God. God, I'm in, I'm in your hands. You're sovereign. Uh, and God works all things together for good, even though we can't always understand uh, the how of that. As in the case of Job, we don't always know the why. Job never did get the answer on why. He got a, a bigger vision of God. But uh, we don't always understand why. And I think this is where trust comes in. Ultimately, God is sovereign. And it is amazing how much suffering there is in life to test us. What are we going to do with this? Am I going to trust God with this? Uh, no matter what it is, uh, that's really what it comes back to, trust. Trusting God, whatever we're going through. The great issue here is what are we going to do about it? Well, wisdom takes it to God in prayer, as David did. Verse 4, concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Note this verse indicates uh, the basis of the testing, as it were. Namely, the word of God. Uh, it is by this, that we test everything, including our own hearts. Now, David had not followed the destructive paths of men. Notice, concerning the works of men, how they work, how they function, how they operate. Uh, he, hadn't, he hadn't gone that way. Uh, he hadn't followed the destructive paths of men as uh, was indicative of those who were really pursuing him. He hadn't become like them, in effect, but rather had followed the principles of God's word. By the word of your lips... 
He says he has functioned. I've kept away from the paths of the destroyer. But then he has this prayer, verse 5. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slide. I love that prayer. Uh, Lord, keep me steady on, on the path here. As David is walking in God's way, he asks that God uphold him in the way, that he not slip and fall. And thus David recognizes his dependence upon God. You know, we could slip. And David recognizes that. He's asking God to help him not slip on the path. Uphold my steps in your paths. I've been walking the, the, the walk. I've been on the path. Lord, help me not to slip on the path. Uh, Spurgeon wrote, What? Slipping God's ways? Notice, I pulled my steps in your paths. It's not like David's on the wrong path. He's on the right path. What? Spurgeon says, slipping God's ways? Yes, the road is good, but our feet are evil. And therefore slip even on the king's highway. Yeah, that's, that's the danger. Verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Now, David is confident that God will answer his prayer for help. And yet he continues to pray to God to respond. That's an interesting balance. God, I believe you're going to answer. I've called upon you. You will hear me. He's confident. And yet at the same time, he says, O God, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. It's a beautiful balance. Confident God will hear, and yet uh, beseeching God uh, to respond. Verse 7, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. So David here appeals to God's loving kindness. This again is that rich Hebrew word, hesed. First to God's faithfulness. Uh, God's covenant faithfulness, sometimes translated steadfast love. Uh, and David here qualifies it as marvelous, God's marvelous loving kindness. David is asking for God to demonstrate his, his loving faithfulness by his right hand, which is to say, in a powerful way. And he specifically asks that God save those who trust in, in him from those who rise up against them. So David really is asking for divine intervention that delivers him and thus demonstrates his marvelous faithfulness. Now, trust in the Old Testament uh, is often the idea of uh, taking refuge in. In fact, some translations would, would translate uh, trust here in this verse in that way. To trust in God is to take refuge in him. Uh, he is the believer's safe place, as it were. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Another beautiful prayer. Uh, David in this verse uses two figures, uh, two metaphors uh, to depict protection. The apple of the eye refers to the, refers to the pupil. Uh, people naturally protect their eye from harm, right? Somebody goes to try to poke you in the eye with a stick. What are you going to do? You're going to protect that eye. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary says the apple, literally gate or opening, probably referring to the pupil of the eye, that part of the eye most easily injured and most demanding of protection. So David asked God to protect him intensely, like one protects their eye from harm. The figure was first applied to Israel in the Old Testament in relation to God protecting them as they came out of Egypt 
We read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, He found him in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He was talking about God's keeping protection in terms of his people. By the way, this analogy is used late in the Old Testament in Zechariah in reference to the Lord's second coming. It's interesting the language that is used there in reference to Israel. Zechariah 2.8, thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations. Where? I think it's ultimately a messianic prophecy here. Uh, he sent me after glory to, to the nations which plunder you, speaking of Israel. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Just try to touch the apple of my eye and see how I respond. <laughs> Think about God. Uh, the idea here in Zechariah 2.8 is that God is sending Messiah to bring glory to himself by plundering the nations who have plundered Israel. The world really should pay attention to the last part of this verse. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I don't know about you. I don't want to mess with the apple of God's eye. God is very sensitive and protective when it comes to Israel. To try and harm them is like trying to poke God in the eye. That's what Hamas did. They kind of poked, poked God in the eye a little bit. Not, not a good place to go. Uh, that's going to get response from the Almighty, and it's not going to be good for the instigator. Well, David appeals to God for this kind of intense protection. Lord, protect me like that. And then using another figure, he asked God to hide him under the shadow of his wings. The figure here also goes back to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. This too is a picture of protection. A mother bird naturally shields her chicks from predators or harm. This figure of speech is used repeatedly in the Psalms. It's also used by Jesus in Matthew 23, 34. So these two figures, the, the apple of your eye and under your wings, are, are really powerful pictures of God's care for his people. David appeals to God for this special care in the context of great oppression and danger. Specifically, verse 9, from the wicked who oppress me. I'm asking for your intense protection from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. So these enemies are not nice people, not nice people. They are described as wicked and deadly. That combination is not good. They're wicked and they're deadly. They, they, want, they want me dead. They obviously wanted to kill David, and they had him surrounded, he says. David, in effect, is singing, where could I go but to the Lord? One of the commentators spoke of a certain Bible teacher who had the custom of praying a certain prayer when he was under attack. And his prayer went like this. Lord, your property is in danger. <laughs> Isn't that good? Lord, your property is in danger. That's what David is saying. I think it's great to pray like David prayed, very personally, uh, looking to God in this context. David did that. He spelled out exactly how he felt to the Lord, exactly what he wanted God to do in terms of protection. Verse 10, they have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths they speak proudly. Closed up their fat heart is really thought to be an idiom for insensitivity. Uh, they had a hard heart and they spoke arrogantly. They're very cocky. Verse 11, 
they have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. Now again, we don't know the exact occasion David is referring to, but twice he mentions that they have him surrounded. Once in verse 9, and now again here in verse 11. Uh, David Gazik says, This psalm has no firm connection to any particular recorded event in David's life, but it is not hard to see it belonging to the long period when Saul hunted David. During that time, David refused to strike out against Saul when he had opportunity because he knew that God must strike against Saul and not David himself. It wasn't up to David to take out the Lord's anointed. The Lord had so clearly put Saul in that position, it would be up to God to remove him. And David knew that. And so he, was, he behaved himself very wisely, as it says over and over in 1 Samuel. Well, whatever the occasion, uh, they had David and his men surrounded, and they were now ready to pounce. That's where we are. They've got us surrounded. We're in trouble. Where could I go but to the Lord? That's where David is. Verse 12, as a lion is eager to tear its prey, and like a young lion lurking in secret places. So David sees the enemy like a wild, dangerous beast just waiting to destroy its prey. No wonder he titled the psalm, A Prayer of David. This was a time of intense pressure. And so David prayed. Verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. David appeals to the Lord to arise to action and confront the enemy, cast him down, bring him down, and deliver my life, deliver David's life. And so he's asking God to be very proactive in a very aggressive way at this point, delivering him with his sword, that God would go on the offense, as it were. Well, God is here pictured as the divine warrior who is going to battle for his child. Verse 14, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. David here describes his enemies further as those who live for this world. And then they die and leave it all behind. And I want you to note that. Uh, men of the world who have their portion in this life. That's what defines them. Uh, and by the way, what, what an apt description of the lost. They have their portion in this life. Uh, and now is everything to them. Uh, you know, ten times in the book of Revelation, earth dwellers is used as a technical term for unbelievers. And for a time, it seems to really go well for them as they amass all kinds of treasure. God allows it. Uh, you fill, uh, and whose belly you fill with uh, your treasure, your hidden treasure. Uh, it seems like everything's going well for them, and, and God uh, sovereignly allows it. Their families do well, but then suddenly they leave it all behind to their babes. They held what this world has to offer, but not for long. David asked to be delivered from the likes of these kinds of men. In contrast to the worldview of the wicked who live for now and brutalize God's people is the settled confidence that David has in the Lord. He's poured out his heart to God. I don't know, 17 petitions, whatever there are. And he now comes to verse 15 where we find him really resting in God. 
Verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. This is in contrast to the wicked he's just described. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, David is thinking about death. Remember, he's surrounded by brutal enemies who are wicked and deadly. So I think he's thinking about death. And in verse 14, he points out that the wicked have their portion in this life. Okay, seems like everything's going their way for now. In contrast, in verse 15, he points out that his portion is with the Lord. David has a hope beyond this life. Most all conservative commentators that I read agree that in this verse, David is talking about eternity. When David says, I will see your face in righteousness, uh, the idea is that he would have a, a righteousness that would enable him to see God. Now, we know that ultimately, as, as applied to us, as we think now through the full revelation as seen in the New Testament, that we have imputed righteousness on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for us when we put our faith in Christ. David was a man of faith, certainly, and therefore justified by faith, even as Abraham was in the Old Testament. But David was a man of trusts, a man of faith, and as such, he envisioned ultimately being in intimate fellowship with God. David says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. This is a beautiful phrase here. Uh, ultimate satisfaction is, is not found in this life. Uh, we were made for God, and satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, is found only in God. Perfect satisfaction will be when we see God face to face. Uh, there is fullness of joy in his presence, as it says in Psalm 16, 11. Uh, I like this from Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. How true that is. Most believe that the language here of awake uh, is a metaphor depicting the resurrection of the human body. And as such, it is a key text in the Old Testament on the hope of immortality beyond this life. Now, the Old Testament does not give much detail about life after death or the truth of the resurrection, but it is definitely represented there. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and it is certainly represented there. Uh, we see Job chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh, where? In my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart yearns within me. And then again, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, in the previous chapter, the resurrection of the Holy One, that is the Messiah, is depicted in Psalm 16.10. So resurrection truth is most certainly found in the Old Testament, but really not fully developed until we get to the New Testament. As I say, uh, this phrase, when I awake, is thought to be the idea of arising from sleep. The sleep of death. Death in the New Testament is consistently spoken of as sleep for the believer. To awake in resurrection glory will be ultimate satisfaction. We will be completely restored to experience fully what God has intended for humanity. 
And that will be satisfying, pure satisfaction, uh, satisfying fellowship with God himself. Now, it has been noted that Psalm 17, 15 and 1 John 3, 2 are very similar in their resurrection emphasis. Uh, note the parallels here. Uh, Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And now in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, and uh, for we shall see him as he is. So there's definitely some, some parallels there. Well, David is called a prophet in the New Testament in Acts 2.30, as God spoke through him prophetically. As an Old Testament prophet, David probably did not fully comprehend the significance of what he wrote, as we find many of the Old Testament prophets did not fully comprehend what they were even writing, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12. But looking at further New Testament revelation, it seems that David, what he had to say here really anticipates what Paul would write about a thousand years later. And we see this in Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. When we see Jesus, it's hard to imagine what this will be like, but when we see Jesus, we will be like him. The conforming work of God in us, conforming us into the image of Christ, will then be complete. Then we will fully know the satisfaction that David wrote about here in Psalm 17, 15. You know, we can't imagine what it's like to see God face to face, but, but it's going to happen for us as believers. Revelation 22, 4, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. We are going to see God in all of his full glory face to face. And, of course, you can only have that experience in a glorified body. This one could never withstand it. When your eternity is settled, and here's the application I want to make from, from everything David is going through here. He's surrounded by deadly enemies. But you know, as he worked this through, I think he came to rest in the hope that he has in God. And when your eternity with God is settled, then you can rest in what he has for you in the here and now. Uh, if God is going to take care of us for all eternity, well, then he can certainly take care of us for these few years here on earth, which are but a vapor. I like this from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fan fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Well, indeed, as David wrote, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Well, indeed, glory, God's glory, and us sharing in that. We will be satisfied when we see him face to face. Indeed, the best is yet to be. All right, let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.